Hi, thanks for listening to the Amusia Story Podcast. This is episode number 12. And that is significant to Michael and me because we had charted out 24 weekly episodes to fill a six-month season, quote-unquote. So with this episode, we're halfway toward mission accomplished. What we're going to do this week is grab something from our archives. Every one of the 11 episodes before now has been something that's been recorded uh, during this year, 2016. But this particular piece actually goes to 1999. Yeah, that I can go that far back is amazing. Um, It's part of the first session of recordings that we ever did at a uh, little studio called Division Hi-Fi in DuBose Triangle in San Francisco. We did three pieces that day. One of them was a song called I Pick Up the Women in the Burn Ward Waiting Room. We recorded a heavy metal prog rock opus about cell division. And we recorded this piece called Morbid Vernal, which is a story uh, whose title makes no sense. Morbid and Vernal are two adjectives that have no business together. But in those earliest days when Michael and I were beginning to collaborate, he would pitch uh, a piece on the guitar. And as we went through that process, I would give his pieces nicknames so that I could refer to them. One of them I called Morbid. Another one I, I gave the tagline Vernal spring-like. I hit on some idea for a story that used both of the pieces together, and Michael wrote a beautiful transition that welds them, and therefore, bah, morbid vernal. The alternate title of Somebody Somewhere failed before the weird charm of just keeping on calling the the dumb thing morbid vernal. So, anyway, here it is. Uh, All this year, we've been valuing the idea of generating new pieces, but at this halfway mark, we're going to take a look back at the very beginning and... Here's the semi-immense journey of Morbid Vernal, spoken by me in a voice that you will notice is higher than my current one. (laughs) I made it about four blocks down the road, staring with drunken stolidity at the zigzagging sidewalk, when a terrific slam pounded through the air. First I thought someone let off a shotgun coming over a crest in the street, I saw a virgin car accident splayed across the intersection a block up. I doubled my stride, stomping erratically from the building's walls to the curb and back again. The scene was fresh. No police, no paramedics, and at 2.30 in the morning, no glazed-eyed onlookers either. Just an automobile rammed up over the median into the trunk of a streetlight. Another tossed haphazardly into a bank of mailboxes and newspaper machines 50 yards down the cross street. Just these two things and me. All of us pulsing erratically in the blinking light of the car's half-disconnected headlamp. It occurred to me that I had no desire to help. I didn't want to call 911, spread encouragement or sympathy to the victims, or hear last confession from a stranger's trembling, bloody lips. Not that I'd refuse to do these things if occasion demanded it, but for me, the principal thing was just to witness something awful. The car on the median I could see as I approached it lunged halfway up the length of its own hood, accordion style. Its doors were flapped open like snapped limbs, and it had vomited a constellation of chrome and clear plastic shards on the median before it. Still larger detritus was the pair of boys that looked like brothers lying by the gutter twenty yards away, draped on the pavement like stalks of threshed corn or slabs of meat at the deli counter. All I could figure was the They thought the gas tank might blow these boys and cleared out when they had the strength. They couldn't possibly have been 
thrown to that spot during the crash. Both of them were rigid, shoulders taut, as they quivered with shock. About a hundred yards off, near the car embedded in the newspaper racks, they were shouting. I looked up to see the drivers confronting each other. They'd been blocked from view by the corner before. Stepping around the boys at the curb, I drifted toward the median and watched the two men from by the wrecked car. One of them, the larger of the two, was sanding out his vocal cords on a belt of obscenities. In the middle of his tirade, he stripped off his tight t-shirt and tossed it on the trunk of his car. I turned back dreamlike to glance at the boys in the gutter they hadn't moved. I should probably find a phone and go call 911, I thought. When I looked back at the two men, I saw the shirtless one had a knife in his hand now. It glinted as he waved it side to side. The other man took a limping step backward, but was too proud to walk away. The car came up the street, rubbernecked through the intersection. It didn't stop. About halfway up the next block, a homeless man was pushing a shopping cart toward us. tentative step from the wrecked car. I glanced down at the boys again. I wonder where the nearest phone is, I muttered aloud. I craned my head over his shoulder to continue watching the two men as I set down the road. They kept shouting, kept staggering out a loose orbit around the knife. Pretty nasty accident, the homeless man commented over the rattle of his cart. Can you spare some change tonight? Anything. A nickel? A dime? I'll take pennies. Sorry, I whispered, too quietly for him to hear, but loud enough to make me feel polite. My feet thudded on the sidewalk as I walked hard, scanning the blocks ahead for phone booths. I was gripped still by the glassy-eyed stupidity that informs a drunken man's steps. I dreaded the onus of trying to help. I dreaded the long bus ride home. I dreaded the sick sleep and weary wakening into the bosom of Sunday's gloom. I wanted to crawl into a soft, dark place somewhere and quit myself of this world. city's lights cast a brassy haze into low-lying clouds. The streets are faintly luminescent, ethereal. I wondered if the two boys were badly hurt. I hadn't seen any blood, but there was a peculiar attitude to their limbs. Arms and legs may or may not be broken. The boys may or may not be hemorrhaging. The man may or may not have cut the other man with his knife by now. I was all heavy feet and sludged head, all acrid taste and sick stomach, all swimming eyes and tunnel vision. My mind, fixed on a field trip I'd taken to a slaughterhouse as a senior in high school. It was a strangely Dante-esque experience, moving slowly closer through tiers of horror to the nexus of it all, the kill floor. We had passed great marbled rows of carcasses, pig heads leaning from steel spikes, roaring machines stuffing lengths of intestine full of pork scraps, cauldrons of strange and stinking lipids. At our odyssey's end lay the stagnant, fleshy air of the kill room itself. Cattle rolled in on hooks, a ceiling runner, skulls, bolt gun just 30 seconds before.
A bland masked man sawed a line down the animals' bellies and bled them over a greasy grate. Tributaries and small creeks of blood, bearing mats of hair and gobs of fat, formed at his feet. biggest thing these guys have to worry about, we were being told, is cutting their own selves. It gets so warm, sticking your hands in all that fresh kilt meat. You can cut yourself. Don't know it till it's had 15 minutes, half an hour to get infected. My attention's not back to the road. There, finally, was my payphone at the end of a cross street block. I broke into a light jog, hopping over a split box heaped with rotting cabbage. It dawned on me that I had made no effort to remember what the cross street had been back there. Had it been Van Ness and Eddie? Or was it Turk, Hyde, Golden Gate? Tearing the receiver from the hook, I cradled it under my cheek and stabbed in 911. The line was dead. Could have guessed as much. Three unseemly individuals compounded from the shadows down the block and moved slowly up the street toward me. Suddenly the neighborhood's unlit expanse and decimated facades appeared sinister and hopeless. I doubled back toward the main avenue. Three minutes. Five went by. What time is it now? How long have I been walking around like this? It's three o'clock in the morning. I'm cruising the edge of the tenderloin for no reason. Maybe it's past three. It'll take at least 40 minutes to get back to my room from here. I'm exhausted, anxious, sick with an expansive and undirected dread. I wonder if anything's on TV this time of day. I wonder if that man got stabbed. If those kids will be okay. If the little piggies will get safe to market. A cruiser must have happened on the scene. Or somebody with a cell phone had driven past. Surely someone somewhere was taking care of everything. Someone somewhere was making sure everything would be okay.
10 a.m. I'm rolling headache and slab faced from bed. I am wearing one sock and my underwear is on backward. Hair's a greasy shock, eyes shot, right hand trembling, just a little. I'm subject to a dehydration so acute that at this moment I am both literally and metaphorically a fire hazard. Feet hit the floor and I pull out a bottle off the nightstand, pour off a couple fingers. The stuff's a damn sight from pleasant to me just now, but necessity is, after all, necessity. You know what they say, he who drinks the most liquor in this life wins, and fuck's sake, if I'm gonna be dead by 30, then I better start acting like it. Could use a goddamn quart of milk. Could use a goddamn slap in the face. Could use a goddamn reason to get up in the morning. I assume I was out being an ass last night, since there was a spotty pall of blackout drawn across the evening. Something about chatting up a Norwegian chick in the bar after night looked promising, but no go. The pervasive timelessness, napping at a bus stop, car wreck out in the road, rapping with that homeless man by his dumpster somewhere, I talked with him a minute or an hour, and I could believe for just that moment that he really was trying to get clean and move back to Oklahoma. Scratch my belly, ten pounds over sags it is, and stare glassily at the floor with tumbler in hand. Why the hell is my underwear on backwards? Promising myself to nap after I rise and slip on last night's clothes, there's got to be a quart of milk for me out there somewhere. Front door opens. It's sunny out, shocking after the dank room and blazing to beat blue hell. I'm not at all sure I like this world this morning. I feel somehow glad to be in it. Market Street draws me like the chance at reckoning, the hope of balance, the possibility of one night's drunk set right on the morning's quart of milk. And here come all the faces, rippling and turbulating one to another in a non-stop organic tapestry. A man whose mottled nose and discolored visage are cobbled with scabs. A woman bearing poise and pomp like shields, a defense so virtuosic it's lost need for opponents. An angry man, a face lean and guttered, throwing incoherent, hated all of us like a thousand darts. A boy with a sultry pout and rehearsed unconcern, struggling to be even self-important. A strangely angelic man with a winding beard stained yellow, stretched out sleeping by his bottle of rot gut. Diminutive Chinese matron surfacing on the sidewalk for a moment to hustle her groceries from one unseen world to another, leaving plumes of fish stink incense behind her. A girl whose eyes say she still thinks happiness is the human default. And for this moment, for some reason, I, I am in love with them all. I want to fall on these faces like a voyeur, an accountant, a sincere and ardent fucker. Every face is a cunt I want to draw it close and tongue kiss. For moments as I pass the faces, I feel married to each one. A lifetime coiled up in a three-tenths of a second. I, I regale them with what I have. I probe their wisdom. Slather them in small talk. Raise children with them. Grip their frightened, deathbed hands. Just to see it. See them open to me for this moment. I'm in raptures. 
I'll never so much as speak to any of these people. I have far too much to tell them, and nothing at all to say.